from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, and this is Greater Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. Not only did the winds of change sweep through our nation last weekend, but the winds of winter swept through Las Vegas. I'm freezing out here. I guess I'm just getting soft. We had a 20 degree, 30 degree drop, so uh, yeah, it's been a little cold. Well, let's heat things up a bit with my guest, Zach Keller. He is the writer of Cuphead Volume 1, Comic Capers and Curios. That was released July of 2020. And coming this February 2021, Cuphead Volume 2, Cartoon Chronicles and Calamities. Both are published by Dark Horse Comics. These are based on the wildly popular and very challenging video game Cuphead. And it's illustrated in the rubber hose style of animation used in cartoons of the 1930s produced by Fleischer and Walt Disney Animation Studios. Sean Dickinson illustrates both books, and the second volume introduces a new character, Miss Chalice. Zach and I also talk about his work on adventure video games for the Telltale series and his multi-award-winning YouTube animated series that he co-created with Ed Skidder titled Dick Figures. Discover how Zach and Ed came up with the concept of these two friends, Red and Blue, and if this series that had nearly 1 billion views would still be as successful and have the same content in today's world. When I kick back with the creator, we learn how Zach has been spending his free time, what he's been making, and the wonderful caffeinated drink he discovered during a trip to Japan. And yes, we will learn about his beverage of choice, his favorite birthday, and the posters and or pictures he had on his bedroom wall, and what comic book and graphic novel work he has planned in the year ahead. Please join me in welcoming Zach Keller, here now, on Creator Talks. Zach, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey there, thanks for having me. You know, some people, they make comics and they want them to become a movie or a licensed property or you know somehow get to the big screen or the small screen at home. You started out as a director, you are a director, and now you're writing comics, kind of the reverse. How's that feel? It feels good, actually. As a creator, you're looking for opportunities and for venues for your stories. And in my career, I started uh, writing and directing for TV and feature films and doing a lot of development work. And I just decided that there were more stories that I wanted to tell that didn't quite fit on the big screen um, and just different audiences I was looking for. And so I started diversifying kind of the type of work I was doing from movies and TV to comic books, video games, novels, short stories. And uh, it's been a really nice kind of patchwork for the last several years as I've kind of picked and chosen what I was feeling like I wanted to do. In the background, I was always working on either on a TV show or a movie or at a video game company. But I, the other ones I kind of elected as uh, I saw fitness as the opportunities uh, appeared. You've been writing scripts. You've been writing stories. And now with writing comics, what are you personally getting from writing the comics? What do you see about them that's bringing something different to you, or you're learning something new about writing comics versus writing the games or screenplays. Yeah, one thing that I like a lot about comics is similar to why I like working in animation and in video games is the collaboration. Um, with comics, I'm working directly with the artists and with the editor. It's a very small team usually, I mean, the colorist and the inker, depending on how big the team is. But it's really great to have those people there and to get their opinions kind of all along the way. I write the script on my own, but then as we actually get into making it, it's really great to have other brains uh, just making the project much stronger. And for comics, while they are obviously a, a visual medium, they are also dialogue driven as well, which is one thing that I always find a lot of joy in, in writing. 
And there's a lot more imagery and, and representation in comics that you don't you don't see in film, you don't see in video games, stuff that can just be shown and, and, and not told. And it's just a different way, different flow of, of information, from those kind of stories. And it's honestly part of the, the joy of it for me is, you know, I, I just grew up reading comic books. I like flipping through it and, and kind of having the reader dictate the pace of it. You know, I, I worked for a while in my career as a film editor. I was controlling the you know, frames and the, um, the actual seconds ticking by and how things moved and all that. And it's nice now to set it down and have the reader kind of pick the pace. We indicate it with how we write the dialogue and how the panels are drawn, but it's really great to have the reader in control as well, which is something that I loved as a kid. I was just kind of flipping through as fast as I could possibly read. So that's kind of been a nice piece of it as well. I appreciate that because when I was a kid and I read comics, I would rip through them really fast because I couldn't wait to find out what happened. But then I can go back at my own pace and go slowly and flip back a page and go, now what happened? Take time to absorb it and really appreciate all the work that goes into it, especially now that I'm older, I spend more time going, wow, that took a lot of work, and I'll spend more time really taking it in. And we'll get back to the comics. I just want to back up a bit about some of the work that you did, and you wrote the adventure games in the Telltale series, which really took off with the release of the Walking Dead game, which I swear I saw ads for that on television. Did they run those during the TV show? You know what? I actually never watched the TV show, but I believe that they did. Um, we have had TV ads in the past. I wasn't at the company when the first season of, of our Walking Dead game was in production and when it got released. But I believe they did show ads for that. These are games that the players can do more than just aim and shoot. They can make choices that affect how the game goes. And I think that's what that did. And there were other games that came out, too, that were really big, like Game of Thrones, Guardians of the Galaxy, Minecraft, Batman. But despite their success... The company had to begin shutting down in September of 2018. And I ask this just because I've been through it a couple of times. You were there working at the time. What actions led to the closing of the business, if you care to discuss it? And could things have gone differently, do you think, if it had been handled differently? I was there when the company closed. I started on Tales from the Borderlands, and I worked through, as you mentioned, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. I worked on Batman. Uh, a little bit of Minecraft, some of the other games. And, and the last thing we were working on was Stranger Things, which was never released, unfortunately. I was the, the lead uh, writer on that project. And, you know, adventure games have always been very close to my heart and to a lot of people's hearts who grew up playing them. And then, you know, Telltale kind of took it to the next level. Other companies have kind of picked up the torch since then. I think the market has always been a little bit small for that type of game. You know, I think these interactive storytelling like that, interactive games work really well in an indie medium because I think it kind of hits that audience perfectly. The Telltale was special in that it had these really big licenses like Batman or like Guardians of the Galaxy. I think the Venn diagram of who liked those franchises and then bought our games was probably not as big as they anticipated. So our production costs were really high, and I think the amount of people who played our games was, was low. The thing was, everybody at Telltale was honestly the best in class, like the great writers, great designers, artists. Everybody was you know, working their hardest for all the years I was there to really make the best games and stories that they could. And it, I still have like great friends from my time working there. Some of the hardest work I've ever done was figuring out how to make those interactive stories work. I think it could have been handled better, like a lot of companies that don't end up making it. Um, I don't know all the particulars of it, given where I was at the company. I think Telltale got really big. You know, we, we had a pretty sizable staff and we were working on these gigantic projects. And I just think it wasn't making sense financially in the end. I, I really hope that either that company or um, other ones like it uh, thrive. You know, I, I have a bunch of friends who, who left Telltale who formed their own companies and went on to do a similar type of work and have had great, great success. So even though Telltale is, is closed, it is resurfacing in some form, it sounds like. And I think that brand of game will always be around and, you know, 
the, the work that people did at Telltale. It is legendary in the industry now, and I think it will spawn games for a year to come that are Telltale light. It was a very special time, and I, I learned a lot while I was there. You work in a lot of different mediums. You have a lot of talent, and you're very versatile. So I think you probably coped with that well. But I'm wondering, since I've had to go through that situation, and there are people going through that situation now that don't have work, how did you cope with the shutdown? It was really difficult. I really hadn't been in that situation before where the company had closed on me. I was literally at home writing scenes for Stranger Things, and I didn't go to the company meeting as I was working. And I texted my friend. I was like, hey, let me know what happens. And they texted me. They're like, basically, stop writing. We're, we're done. We're, we're, we're closing our doors. And I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've always had this kind of patchwork career of different places I work, different mediums. So I've always had irons and, and multiple fires. And while I was working at Telltale, I've been working with Dark Horse Comics, doing some work for Warner Brothers on, on a TV show. And so I was always working on various things and just talking about the companies. And I think Telltale was unique in that there weren't a lot of people doing the work that we did, but because the work was of a high quality, people wanted to work with us. So having spent 10 years in Hollywood, we were always talking to somebody about the next project or next opportunity. I continued to do that when I was at Telltale, and I continue to do it to this day because you just never know when you're going to need to make that phone call for the next job. And as uh, luck would have it, or I guess as preparation would have it, with the moment Telltale closed, I, I had actually already been talking to a few other companies. And I said, hey, let's, let's talk more seriously now. Um, and I kind of reached out to my contacts in comic books and in TV and in games. And actually the next six months before I landed a, a more full-time job, I worked in all three of those mediums at the same time just to get back on my feet. And so I was very lucky that I had all that stuff in place to be able to make the transition because it was a, a very difficult time for a lot of people. Everybody has since landed on their feet, but it was pretty shocking, not just to everyone who worked there, but just to the industry at large, that this kind of pillar of interactive gaming um, and just games in general had disbanded. You know, there were several hundred people now in the workforce that were super talented. What comes next? One door closed, the other one opened for you. And the thing that you did, which people should do, is always stay in contact with your contacts. Don't wait until you need a contact. You know, always be networking, always be talking to people. Find out what's going on because things change. And as you found out and I found out, they can change at a moment's notice. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's important to be a little your company you're working for and to, to work hard and do the best job you can. But there's really no harm in a meeting or talking to other people. It shouldn't show disloyalty at all because as A, Tattoo closed, we had zero warning. We, we did not know at all. Also, your, your situation could change and it might not be the place wherever you're working for you. And you need to make that change. And as opposed to it taking weeks to months to figure it out, if you're already talking to people, you can reignite those conversations more quickly. You really do as a writer and creative, really anybody these days, you really have to protect yourself and constantly be, be talking to people because you, you just honestly never know. Now, on to something lighter. Your <laughs> multi-award winning animated series, Dick Figures, and I can say that. This is a clean show. It's okay. I can say it. <laughs> good, good, good. That ran between 2010 and 2014 on YouTube was the highest rated, 99%, the most viewed on YouTube with nearly a billion views. You created 49 episodes. Some really funny stuff, too. I have to say I was laughing pretty hard. Thank I'm you. curious about this because my son loves YouTube videos. He hasn't seen these, but he loves them. He's nine, so he's like all about that. He wants to be a YouTube star. Tell me about the origin of these characters, Red and Blue. Because that sounds like a, a drinking conversation you had with a friend and just this thing sprang to life. You are pretty accurate on a lot of those <laughs> points. Um, I think that's honestly where the success came from. So I was working at a company called Six Point Harness at the time. Um, it was 2010. We were doing a development program where we were working with Mondo Media, who had released uh, Happy Tree Friends, which is like the biggest animated show on YouTube. It's got billions and billions of views. It's incredible. And they said, hey, let's try and make some more animated content. Let's see what can happen. 
And so a friend and I started working on a show together. His name's Ed Scudder. And we wanted to do something that was, you know, really fun. It was about relationships with friends and just things that we found interesting. Uh, but also it was pretty easy to animate because we knew it was going to be on YouTube. We knew the budgets were going to be low. And we had to do them really quickly. And so Ed actually created this idea and then uh, pulled me into it. The first episode, we just kind of sat around making each other laugh, saying ridiculous things and <laughs> trying jokes and you know having a couple of beers. And we just kind of built it in the recording booth. One of us laughed, we put it in the script and we recorded it. And we really didn't have many expectations of what the show could be. We were told, okay, if you get, it was 100,000 views in a week on YouTube with the first episode, we'll let you do another one. So we were like, okay, we'll see what happens. So we made the first episode, which is called A B or something. We put it out there. And really quickly, we had a super positive response. I think it was within a couple of days, we got 100,000 views. And so Six Point and Mondo were like, hey, let's make another and Ed and I were like, we don't have any ideas for what's going to come next, but we have a million ideas for what we could do. And so we just started making episodes. I think it was every two weeks was our release cadence. We just started making new episodes, kind of on what was funny to us at the time, what was going on in, in the world, or just interesting. Um, you know, we like to do a riff on a lot of movies and TV shows and just tropes in general. And we really built it episode by episode, always thinking that that episode was going to be the last one. I think a lot of the success came from the fact that that was our mentality. We just were like, you know, it's going to be shut down. We should just go all in and do something really crazy. And then, as you mentioned, you know, we did 49 episodes and then we also did some additional ones up to 55. We did a feature film. We did a Kickstarter. It all just happened organically, just episode to episode. And the fan base grew kind of week over week. And we had just a really amazing response. But all the way, we just said, you know, well, let's make each other laugh. And what we find funny, we think other people will find funny, too. And it was always just the two of us and, you know, our friends and the people we work with making this show. You know, my brother was the composer, you know, one of my best friends was one of the lead storyboard artists and animators. And so it was a very small team, even until the end. And we did not expect it to be a, a billion view show or however many it has now. It's kind of a double-edged sword because it is called Dick Figures. We just thought it would be this little silly show about two stick figure friends who were jerks. And now it is kind of like that thing on our resume that says Dick Figures and you know, it was nominated for an Annie and all this stuff, which is kind of unbelievable. Where are you guys from? We are from the planet Albuquerque. You mean Albuquerque? No. Albuquerque, your earth food tubes were the most delicious thing we have discovered. You mean burritos? Yes, we demand you give us all your burrito tubes or we'll kill you. Just kidding, but not. We are a humor race. These guys couldn't tell a joke to save their life. Oh yeah, how about this one? A human traveled to a planet that was hostile to his carbon-based life support systems. He perished abruptly. The humor is in his termination. See, we are not so different, you and I. You breathe oxygen oxygen through your mouth and out of your butts. We breathe oxygen through our butts and into our brains, which powers a miniature nuclear reactor. We are the same. Dude, let's totally mess with these guys. Yeah, yeah. This is how we wash our faces. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just pooped in there. To relax, we jump in front of these metal boxes. Okay. Excellent. I feel soft everywhere. To reproduce, we kick each other in the stomach like this. <gasps> You're pregnant. You are pregnant. Ow. Ah! Your earth ways are strange and painful. <laughs> are you kidding? We don't actually kick each other in the stomach. We were just messing with you guys. And it always amazes me, and I find this proven again and again. Sometimes the simplest things are the funniest when it comes to like commercials that are funny or memorable. There wasn't a huge budget. But it's something about it, and it's short. It You remember it, and it makes you really laugh. It's the simplest things. And yours you know, wasn't a big budget, but it was funny, and it really connected with people. 
Do you think it would have the same success if you started today, 2020, not in the current environment of what's going on, but just in this day and age? Do you think it would have the same traction? Well, I think funny is funny. Things, obviously, they age humor-wise. Like Some things are evergreen, but if the idea is funny, it usually is funny for quite a while. The show in its form as it was then would have some trouble being made now for a couple of reasons. One thing is that back then it wasn't as crowded of a marketplace and there was Happy Tree Friends, which came before us, but at the same time there was Cyanide and Happiness was doing animation. Ego Raptor was an animator who was doing a bunch of cool stuff online um, and a bunch of other people that we knew in the same sphere, but it was starting to get its legs at that point in time. And so we had the space and time to um, carve out a little niche for ourselves that now it's, it's quite crowded and the production values are, are really, really high. I also just think thematically, we, we probably would have done the show differently now and, and made it more about social issues or topics. We were, we were animating so fast. Every two weeks, we could do something. I think just the culture has evolved. And I think who we are as people evolved. You know, I was 24, 25, I think, when it was. And you know, it was 10 years ago. So 35 now. And so what I think about is quite a bit different these days. And so we'd be a little bit more PC in some ways. But I think some of the, the wildness of the show is what attracted people to it. A lot of our fans said, oh, Red reminds me of a friend of mine or Blue reminds me of a friend of mine. And I think that's what it was. It was really a show about friends and friendships. And then also just all the weird things you think about during the day, just kind of put into an animated form. So I think we would have trouble now. I think if we were to bring the show back, we would completely redo it and still have the same core relationships with everybody. But I think we would take a different tack on what the show is about and why. There was not really a purpose to the show. It was just fun. We'd give it more of a point if we did it again. Well, bringing us up to the present for a totally different audience is your work on Cuphead. And that's the first thing I noticed of your work because I saw that and I was like, this is incredible. This looks like those old cartoons by Fleischer, the Popeye. And I didn't know they were called rubber hose type figures. I didn't know that was the nomenclature for that. But these books, Volume 1 and Volume 2, which is coming up on Cuphead, is based on a running gun action game based on boss battles inspired by cartoons of the 1930s. And the game was called Deal with the Devil. Now, I don't know a whole lot about gaming, I'll be honest. My son tells me most of it. He's nine, because he's really plugged into that. And the soundtrack to that video game had big band music, jazz music of the era, and all the illustrations, I understand, were hand-drawn, and the backgrounds of watercolor, which is all amazing. And now it's going to be developed, I think it's still being developed, for Netflix. And you've just written two volumes. Well, you wrote one, and you had the second one in the works coming out. Cuphead Volume 1, Capers and Curios, that came out in July, and Cuphead Volume 2... Cartoon Chronicles and Calamities. That's coming out in February. And these are suitable for middle grade children ages 10 and up. Tell me about these characters, Cuphead and Mugman, the central characters. I love the Cuphead franchise. I think it's incredible. Like I was a fan of the game when it first came out. I have some friends who've worked on it. And the call actually kind of came out of the blue for this. Dark Horse was doing these comics and they'd worked with me in the past. And one of my good friends who works on the, on the, the game is one of the lead animators he recommended me for the job and I was like thrilled when I got it. I only love, you know, animation and classic animation, but also just the feel of the world itself. And Cuphead and Mugman are the title character and they're brothers. Fleischer was an animation company back in the 1930s, pre before Disney really took off, the, like you said, the rubber hose animation. They live in this wild 1920s, 1930s depression era, pre-war world where it's a little bit grungy and dirty, but at the same time, it's wild and fantastical and technology is just kind of starting to take off. Anything is possible, but it's also grounded in a lot of socioeconomic depression and issues that were happening at that time. So it's just like a really interesting place for these two characters, these two boys and kids, basically, to be in a game and to be in stories. And 
I think it really took off the characters and everyone's love for them because Cuphead is just, he's a bit of a, a rascal. You know, he has a really good heart. He wants to get into trouble. He wants to get out there. He's just looking for fun. And Mugman, who's you know as sweet as can be, he's there to you know, protect his brother and get him out of trouble whenever something goes wrong. And so they're a pretty good pairing for when you want, you want to get them into some type of adventure or uh, put them in a, a situation where uh, trouble is going to occur. And I think what's interesting in these two boys is just the way that they talk. You know, we don't really see a lot of shows these days that use that kind of quote unquote old timey language. It's really like there's nothing else out there like it. I've seen kids, you know, as young as six or seven playing the games, which is impossibly hard and loving what they're seeing, what they're hearing, because it just really is so different. The comics that we did, we're basing it off of the game, but we're, we're telling our own stories and kind of doing our own slight take on Cuphead, Mugman, Miss Chalice, and Elder Kettle, and all the bosses and characters of the world. So we're kind of carving out our own stories with them and you know, coming up with new adventures. And because the game only has a little bit of story and a little bit of characterization in it, Dark Horse gave us a lot of flexibility to say, well, who are these characters and where do they come from? How do they live? What kind of trouble do they get into? And just dig a little bit deeper with each of them, which is really, really been amazing. I've been working with Studio MDHR, who is the company that made Cuphead. They've been an incredible partner in this whole thing, you know, really guiding me and the artist, his name Sean Dickinson, who's incredible, um, really guiding us so that it feels like it's part of their larger world that they're creating, but also they've given us enough rope to do our own thing at the same time. It's honestly been a joy because I wrote those two books and just each story is like between one and five pages. I just get to think like, what's a crazy scenario? I can, I can put these boys in and, and see what happens. I've been really proud of the project because everybody on it has been wanting to make it the best that they possibly can. And as you mentioned, in the artwork, it's really, really shining through. Well, let's talk about that. Tell me about your collaborators, Sean Dickinson, and on the first volume, Christina Liu, who bring the characters of Inkwell to life on the page. So Sean also, like me, kind of got a call out of the blue. He had been doing his own artwork in that kind of 1930s animation style, again, that kind of Fleischer style. I think he did tattoos, but he did a lot of like decals and he did a lot of drawings and artwork that he was selling i did a lot of trade shows like a kind of hot rod vibe of the 1930s muscle cars and stuff he kind of existed in that sphere for a while just churning out incredible artwork that is super detailed and the great characters he's, he's creating um and very very iconic style that he developed based on this original style and he kind of got handpicked by studio mdhr to do this comic and this was actually his first comic book and i'm was shocked by that because he knocked it completely out of the park. Every panel, every page is incredible. And he really has been taking the time to think everything through. And you'll see when you read the comic books, just how detailed it is. Not just like the detail in terms of like the how well the characters are drawn, but like you were saying earlier, like you'd read the story really fast and go back and look through it. And I urge anybody who reads the Cuphead books to go back and look because in the background or in the, the splash pages and the big panels, there are so many other little things going on that Sean took the time to think about and to build out. So it really feels like a living, breathing world that he's invented. So like, I, you know, why I wrote the dialogue and I said, here's what I think is going to happen in the panel. And Sean took it, ran with it and did it 10 times better than I ever could have expected. And so he's been an incredible collaborator. And we've only ever talked on the phone a couple of times and changed a lot of emails we've never even met. Well, this was done during the uh, the pandemic. And with book two, we, we still haven't been able to meet or go to Comic-Con or anything. So it's been a, a virtual relationship, but he's been an absolutely amazing collaborator. It's a lot in a way like Dick Figures because the stories are short. The videos were short. So you pack a whole bunch in there and each story goes in a different direction because it's such a surreal world. You could do anything. So it goes a lot of different places and it is something you will want to go back and look at all the detail in it. Yeah, and I actually like the short form, you know, because I think the way I like to think about it, this is, and, and Dick Figures as well, is 
are all these kind of little bite-sized stories and characterizations and uh, drama that they add up um, over time. You just kind of like enjoy, it's like popcorn. You just eat, eat a lot of it and eventually you'll be full, but you're taking little bites at a, at a time, but they should all be really enjoyable. You know, with book one, we, we really focused on the bosses from the first game, the two kids. And in the second one, we're talking about bosses from the DLC and other bosses that didn't get their story in the, in the first book. But then also going a little bit deeper into the backstory and doing longer stories and trying different things. And I hope if we get to do more books someday, we'll, we'll even continue exploring the, the world further. But they should just be fun little romps to enjoy. If you read all of them, they do connect in some ways. So I, I'm really curious to hear as people start reading uh, the second volume, what, what they think. And in the second volume, you have a new character, Ms. Chalice? Ms. Chalice, she is in the first game, not as a playable character, only Cuphead and uh, Mugman are playable. She is playable, I believe, in the DLC that's coming out. She's kind of getting more and more screen time, as it were, more page time. She was in the first book, and she's part of several of the stories, but the studio MDHR has really made her really part of the trio now. It's, it's Cuphead, Mugman, and Ms. Chalice as the main cast, the main characters. And so in the second book, she really gets her time. We have a, the longest story uh, yet, actually, is, is a story with her kind of playing this uh, kind of 1930s, 40s detective, which is going to be a lot of fun. And so, yeah, it's, it's adding her to it. It kind of makes all the stories stronger because we have a, a new voice in the mix. And she, she has her own thoughts and opinions on what's going down and um, is a force in her own way. The stories that you wrote in the first volume, obviously you're drawing from the video game, the characters. But like you said, there wasn't a whole lot there. You could really flesh it out. What helped you craft those stories? Something totally different, something totally new, and something so different from everything else out there. What well did you draw from to draw those stories or write those stories? I mean, one of the main wells for me for writing is research. So I looked up historically, you know, what was happening. I kind of put the period in like just post World War One to pre World War Two. Like it's really 1930s, but there's stuff in that whole era that. I think I think it's worth talking about um, if, if it still fits. And so I spent you know days culling through all the different timelines, what happened, and you know different world events in different countries, and handpicking a few things that I thought could resonate in this town that you know people kind of get the illusion to what I'm talking about. They're like, oh, I you know the Hoover Dam was built during this time, and there's a story in the second book about a dam that's being built. There's a lot of talk about the Great Depression and Prohibition and stuff like that, and it, it helps color the Cuphead world, but it also we get to define it in our own way. So in this world, it's prohibition, but it's about sugary drinks, you know, because there's um, one of the characters that owns a candy factory. And we got to take, you know, this kind of thing that's happened in American history and subvert it and make it our own. And so part of it was taking in some actual historical events. And the other part of research was researching the characters themselves. So what had Cuphead, Mugman, and then obviously all, all the bosses like Captain Briny Beard and Kala Maria and all these other ones, you know, what do we know about them? But also just looking at their designs, what don't we know about them? Playing their levels, what's that? What's going on in the background there? What's the pyramid behind the, the genie level? What's going on in that pyramid? I'm just starting to take stuff that existed that I think a lot of artists, the game had built and definitely had some thinking behind. But I was able to then tell stories about the things that were in the frames. There's a, a story in the first book about the junkyard where the, um, the mad scientist levels take place in this giant robot. And I did a whole story in a junkyard. I just started imagining what, what would happen there and uh, what, what kind of, again, what kind of trouble could Cuphead get into? Um, and then the other side of it, too, was just trying to think of interesting relationship and conflicts that I can get the brothers into themselves. And um, I do that with a lot of stories of just saying, hey, Cuphead is a certain way. Mugman's a certain way. What happens when we put them together? You know, there's a lot of obvious ones like Cuphead wants to do something dangerous. Mugman doesn't want him to do it. You know, hilarity ensues. And a lot of them do use that structure. Uh, but then we like to twist and turn it and try different things as well. And you know, bring in Elder Kettle and uh, Miss Chalice and, and a lot of the bosses as well. 
allows us to have a lot of variety. The bosses were one of the main selling points of the game. And they're a huge part of the, the books as well. Like basically every story has a boss in it. But we had to kind of for the first time construct a world where the bosses all kind of live there with the characters. Like what does that actually look like and how does it function? So it's been a lot of thinking, a lot of thinking and, and trying stuff out. And for the first book, I think there's 15 stories or so, but I probably wrote 20 or 25 stories and, and some were rejected for a variety of reasons or just didn't work out. And we really ended up with stories that everybody on the team was super, super happy with. So it was a long process, but it was, it was absolutely worth it. Well, when you sat down to write the second volume, having done the research for the first, did it come easier to you to write those stories? I had a list of stories I didn't get to after the first one that I picked up with and continued developing. So I had some starts on them, but it was harder in some ways because like the top 10 ideas that I did for the first one, I'd already done them. But to dig a little bit deeper and figure out, okay, what are some other things that I could tell stories about? But also, I, as I tend to do with writing, I think most writers do, is I went inward as well. I wanted to do stories that I would find interesting. So I love to fish in my spare time. So in, in book two, there's the story about the, the boys going fishing, and they encounter a character from the second cuphead, I think either from the DLC or from the second game. And so I told a lot of stories that I personally found interesting. And I'm in a unique situation where we're telling, if like you said, so many different stories that I kind of sometimes I'm also writing some for other people. I, I wrote a story that my wife would really like. I wrote a story that my, my brother would really like and my best friend. So it's kind of like dick figures again, where I know I will make someone laugh or they'll be interested in it because I, I know them really well. And so it's the same thing where, hey, if they like it, I think other people will like it too. As I said, the second volume is going to be out in February, I believe, like towards the middle end of February. That is correct. Yeah. So I look forward to that because I really enjoyed the first one. I read it the same day that I went out to see the Hoover Dam. I read the story about the dam that you had in the book. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it was good that I had a chance to see your story because I never did get to see the Hoover Dam. It was closed. It's been closed. Oh, really? I didn't realize this, even though the signs were saying, the dam is closed. I'm like, nah, I don't really mean that because <laughs> we're still driving. That's funny. We went to Boulder City to check out a horror museum. Let's go to the Hoover Dam because my son wants to be an engineer at his age. He says, I'm going to be an engineer. I said, well, you should see Hoover Dam. And we drove to it and they said, well, you have to turn around. It's closed because of the pandemic. And then two days later, it opened up. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I heard the odds. <laughs> Fortunately, though, we're not that far away. So we'll go back. But uh, oh, good. thank you for your story about a dam because at least I had a chance to see the dam. Even oh, good. It was so a cartoon. You to see an anthropomorphic dam and, yeah. uh, and all that happens to it. So I'm glad that worked out. More cosmic things happening. We had a few we talked about before the show started. So even more. That's just how it works. Let's talk about some fun stuff. The kicking back with the creator questions ask all my guests just to learn more about you as a person. And one of the questions I like to ask, and I'll ask you, is what you like to do for recreation. And it sounds like fishing is one of those things you really like to do. Fishing is a thing that I love to do and is one of the things that we still can do in, in this world. I, I, you know, a lot of people's hobbies have been uh, indoor hobbies for the last uh, however many months we've been, we've been in this. So I do a lot of you know, obviously writing for work. I used to do writing for fun, but I've, I've stopped that. I do it all day long. So 
I like to you know, still build and create stuff in my spare time, but most of it comes down to actually cooking. And I like to make beer and again, these strange pandemic times. My wife and I've been making sourdough bread. You know, I live in the Bay Area where sourdough is huge and making jams and all kinds of preserves and stuff. It's oddly kind of how it might have been back in the 30s as well, is that you'd be, you'd be doing a lot of this stuff because you had to do it on your own. We're not making bathtub gin like they did, but we are making lagers and ales and stuff like that, which has been fun. Uh, again, camping and hiking and fishing is a safe, fun thing to do. And we've been doing that a lot this summer and, and spring. It's been a hobby of mine for a long time. And my wife is a, an amazing fisher person. So we really enjoy going, going up to the mountains and uh, and catching some trout and stuff like that. I think you, you work so hard during the day and uh, having some hobbies that like totally rewire your brain at night or uh, on the weekends are, are, are things I'm always looking for. Those are really good hobbies. They give you a lot of balance because with you working in video games and writing books all the time, you know, that's something that's just different. Get away from the technology. Yeah, it's good to not be looking at a screen. You know, it's, it's good fodder for stories, but honestly, it's just a good way to unwind. So especially when I was working at Telltale, you're working on like multiple storylines at the same time. Like mm -hmm. my brain was on fire constantly. And What's nice about some of the hobbies I've been doing now, like, you know, making bread or fishing, or whatever, they're very concentrated efforts on kind of singular tasks. It's, uh, you know, mix the ingredients together and uh, make sure the temperature is okay, let it rise, fold it, put it in the oven. It's pretty direct. And so I kind of like the, a little bit simpler hobby these days. And also it's rewarding because you get bread at the end of it. And if you're making beer too, it's basically got a meal. You know, you can make beer bread too. I have not made beer bread. How is the beer making going? Because I know some people try to make their own beer and sometimes it's successful and other times, eh, not so much. How's it working out for you? It's been going well because I've been doing it for about 13 or 14 years now. I guess I started doing it just after college. And I actually didn't drink much beer at the time, but I started making it with a friend of mine, a fellow writer who I've been writing with kind of my whole life and career. We started making beer together just as a way to hang out. You know, it's, it takes a couple hours. You go to the supply store, you hang out, you go back, you, you make the beer. It takes a couple hours, you drink. And then a couple of weeks later, you, you have the beer and it's ready to go. So I've been doing that hobby for quite a while. It There were a lot of... Um, missteps when I first started making beer, but now I, I have the confidence that because I've done dozens and dozens of batches to kind of make what I like and know with a relative degree of certainty that it's going to turn out pretty well. And so it, I've actually been lucky, yes, I think with a lot of hobbies like that, with unknowns or like baking, stuff like that, it can be kind of finicky. And so you know, we all have a little extra time on our hands. So it, I've been able to, to use it to, to make food and alcohol, which has been a, a needed thing. Thinking back, what was a favorite birthday of yours? My, one of my favorite birthdays was also my least favorite birthdays, uh, unfortunately. But um, 1983 or 84, Jurassic Park had just came out and I was obsessed with dinosaurs, all things uh, movies and really just fossils and paleontology in general. And for my birthday, my parents took us out, to, me and a couple friends out to this um, amazing museum uh, near, near where I lived that, that had tons of dinosaur fossils. And we spent the day like eating ice cream and pizza and looking at fossils. And like, I was just dreaming of being like a filmmaker someday. And like, it all came together. Unfortunately, later that day, I didn't realize that I had the flu and I had to play a, a baseball game. And I, I, I don't get told a story anywhere ever, but exclusive here. I, my dad was like, he's like, you should just go in there. And if you're not feeling well, you can come out after this inning or whatever. I was like, okay. So I go out there and this hitter throws like fastball. I hit it deep into the outfield and I start running and then throw up everywhere. <laughs> and I was horribly sick oh, for the no. whole weekend. And so it was like the best birthday ever because it was like dinosaurs and movies and friends. And then I got violently ill. So that's the first one that comes to mind and I'm going to stick with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least half the day was good. Absolutely. <laughs> Hypothetical situation. You're stuck on a deserted island. There's no dinosaurs there. You're okay. What good. would be the one book you want to have with you for fun, to read for pleasure? Something either you've meant to read and haven't had a chance to, or something you just like to read repeatedly because it brings you so much pleasure. Good question. 
I think it might be The Lord of the Rings. I've always loved those books, and there's so much to them. And I've only read them, I think, once or twice. I, I love the adventure. I, I love all the characters. I love the lore of it. And it just like, holds a very special place in my heart. And it's also long. It's a relatively long book, so there'd be a lot to read and to study and to, and to think about. I when I was a baby, my dad read The Hobbit to me, and so that story has kind of always been in my life in one form or another, and so it's very, very special to me. I think that's the book I'd have. Now, I like to ask my guests, what is your beverage of choice? And I know you're a brewmaster, <laughs> so maybe it is beer, but what is your beverage of choice? It doesn't have to be beer, and if it is beer, what kind? I think during daylight hours, my drink of choice is, a, is coffee. For sure. It definitely helps me with writing. Any any type of I'm on board for. I've been drinking a lot of bottled Japanese coffee uh, weirdly recently. And at night, definitely beer is my drink of choice um, over wine or liquor or anything else. And honestly, what I've been drinking these days is lighter beer, like lagers primarily or pilsners. I really like German beer. Uh, I took a trip with some of my buddies to Germany a few years ago and had never really had German beer until I was there and was just like, man, this is good any time of day and I love it. And you don't find it as much in, in the States. And, and whenever I can, I buy as much of it as <laughs> as I can. So just kind of like a light, crisp German lager, of like a Hofbrau or something is um, really, really good. And that, that's been sustaining me over the uh, pandemic. And in, in Germany, it's nice. You get it in the third of a liter, half liter, or full liter, which is uh, kind of nice. <laughs> yes, they consider that liquid bread. Again, the theme of bread you know, comes back again. Yeah, I understand, too, that people that work in Germany, they sometimes will have a beer during lunch. It's not unusual to do that. I think that is a good tradition. I think also you know, a lot of their beers are like slightly lighter in, or lower in alcohol. And mm -hmm. so you have a third of a, a liter or something, and it's slower. It's, it, it can definitely make you tired. <laughs> sometimes I've worked at, you know, at companies and offices, especially in the you know, working here in games and tech industry, people go out for a lunch beer and whatnot. But if I'm writing, I absolutely cannot drink alcohol. It slows my brain down too much. So I, I definitely stick to caffeine when I need uh, when I need to write. Well, tell me about this Japanese coffee. I haven't heard of that. So I was in Japan three years ago now with my wife. We went on this uh, long trip there. And there's a lot of coffee shops, really great coffee culture there. But they also have a really great vending machine culture in Japan. They have millions of vending machines, literally millions of vending machines in the country. You can get food out of them. You can get items. You can get electronics and stuff. But they also have really great caffeinated beverages, so coffee and tea. And one of the big coffee brands there is a company called Boss Coffee. Oddly enough, the spokesperson in Japan is Tommy Lee Jones uh, and has been for a while. It's pretty amazing. you, you got to look it up. They have these great ads with Tommy Lee Jones. But the coffee out of a vending machine, you can get it hot or cold, and it's delicious. Um, and so when we were there, we were buying it on our, this long road trip, kind of around the country. We would buy it every turn that we could. We could find it. We'd just pick up some Boss Coffee. And they didn't sell it in the United States for years. You could get it imported at a few um, like Asian markets or mm -hmm. some Japanese, uh, like in this Japantown. You could only find it in a few places, but Amazon just started selling Boss Coffee, which is a Japanese coffee company. You know, my wife and I, we both work full-time jobs. We both take care of our 18-month-old son. And so being able to just crack a can of delicious coffee at any point of the day is a really nice treat. Do you have an 18-month-old son? I do. Now I know why you make beer. Yeah, at the end of the day of working, it's a nice thing to have. He's wonderful. But yeah, it's, we both work full-time jobs and mm. full-time take care of him. So it is uh, quite a long day. Has that put your travel on hold for a while now? It has and it hasn't. If there was no pandemic, we yeah. would be traveling a lot. I work for a company currently called King Games. Um, we, we make Candy Crush and a bunch of other uh, big franchises. I'm the narrative director of that company. And they are headquartered in Stockholm, Sweden. They also have offices in London and Barcelona and Berlin, kind of all over Europe. And when my son was three months old, we packed him up, got him on a flight, and we flew out to Stockholm for two weeks. So I, I worked out there with, with him. My wife and I have always traveled and will continue to. And we were supposed to go to Spain and uh, England with our son 
uh, back in May when everything you know had been shut down. So unfortunately, we missed that trip. But as soon as things open up again, we'll probably do um, a little uh, round trip around the European studios, and we'll definitely bring him along. Oh, that's a great opportunity for him. That's going to do so much for him as he gets older. He'll have a real appreciation for other cultures and the much larger world that we live in. I was lucky enough to travel when I was young, and I definitely want to make sure he does as well. And when, when we went to Stockholm back when he was three or four months old, uh, my wife and I both had to work full-time jobs, so we hired a nanny. And while we were working at our companies, the nanny was taking him to like natural history museums and art galleries and all this stuff. So he definitely got to see the real Stockholm and experience some culture while we were stuck in offices. Um, <laughs> so I think next time we go back, he'll he's now mobile. He can run around now. And he hopefully we'll start remembering things soon. He'll, he'll get to really uh, experience it and eat the food and enjoy all the culture there. So we're looking forward to that. Thinking back to when you were like a youngster, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? I had the aforementioned Jurassic Park poster. I was a big Jurassic Park fan. Uh, also Indiana Jones. I love Indiana Jones uh, movies. So I had the Raiders of Lost. I had Last Crusade poster, which was my favorite at the time. And The Matrix. That was my holy trinity of movies. I like loved those three movies. So I had those movie posters. Because I was into like paleontology at the time. I had other like drawings of dinosaurs, kind of scientific drawings and of fossils and stuff like that on the walls. At the time, I also did a lot of drawing myself. I, I put up stuff that I drew just like in a corner. I'd constantly putting up drawings I was working on or I did a lot of storyboarding as I was into making movies. I'd put that stuff up on the wall. But really, because I was, you know, I grew up wanting to make movies, I had a lot of movie posters. Um, they kind of rotated in and out, you know, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and other stuff I was really into at the time. But all, always movie posters and always kind of those big blockbuster action adventure movies. Now, let's talk a bit about comics, other comics. Uh, now, you have worked on a comic through Dark Horse, Deathhead. What comics did you grow up reading? When I was younger, I read actually a lot of comics based on those franchises I had mentioned, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, a lot of stuff like that, just because I wanted to read more stories about them, like the, the Fate of Atlantis, Indiana Jones comic. I like love that that series. But I also read a lot of Marvel, uh, kind of a wide variety of Marvel stuff, especially Spider-Man. And uh, my dad was a big like Justice League fan when he was a kid. And so he kind of introduced me to Batman and the Justice League. And so I read a lot of Batman. I love Batman. And as I got a little bit older, I started reading more graphic novels. You know, I loved Bone. I think Bone is like one of the greatest stories, one of the greatest graphic novels. And it's, it's been really, really inspiring to me. Uh, also one called Blankets I really, really liked. And then uh, Why the Last Man by Brian K. Vaughn. I started getting into more like thrillers and horror stuff as well. And now I still read comics. But back then it was a lot more, you know, the Marvel and DC, the superhero stuff. Um, peppered in with some more indie comics and graphic novels. Do you still find time to read them? I know you like to still read them, but as busy as you are, how do you make the time, especially with the youngster? <laughs> I don't read as much <laughs> at all anymore as I should. I do make a special exception for these horror comics by this amazing um, horror writer and illustrator named Junji Ito from Japan. He had a book called Uzumaki, which like absolutely scared the pants off me. I, I couldn't get past like the 10th page or something the first time I read it. And then I learned to love it. And I, and I read all of his books. And a book of his just came out called uh, Venus in the Blind Spot, I believe. And uh, he's an amazing storyteller. And so I, I read all of his books when they come out. And sometimes if, if there's a, a big book or a graphic novel or a series, I will pick it up. But to be honest, I have not read as much. It, it's a few times when something, again, like a Junji Ito's new book comes out, I'll, I'll pick it up and read it when everyone else is asleep. If you like horror, it is excellent, but it is definitely very intense. So Zach, what is next for you after you have finished Cuphead Volume 2? What do you have your sights set on? I'm hoping to do some more stuff with Dark Horse and then comics in general. One, I can't talk about just yet, but I did write another book for them, another horror book, um, which I unfortunately can't discuss quite yet. But hopefully it will be announced soon. I'm um, working with an incredible 
kind of like a legend in the, in the comic industry. It's going to be a, a horror graphic novel, which I'm really, really excited about. And then I have an original book that is kind of a middle grade young adult story, which again, I can't talk about. I'm hoping to either work with Dark Horse or another company like them. The stories I've had for probably 10 years, I've just been noodling on it forever and ever and ever. And about six or seven months ago, I finally cracked it and finished it and got all the plans in place. I want to tell that story. It's most likely a, a graphic novel or, or a series of maybe five or six six issues. So on the comics front, I'm going to be doing that. And comics have been great because it's a really wonderful creative outlet. You know, I'm looking for new partnerships. And at the same time, I'm, I'm still working for uh, this company, King, and we're making some... Uh, again, I can't talk about that, that either, unfortunately. <laughs> and nothing's coming out soon. I wish I could talk about it, but we're working on a bunch of new games, which I'm really excited about. So I think comics for the next year or so, you're, you're going to see this one new horror book and then hopefully... The other one, which the tone is much more it's a young adult, uh, much more comedy focused. It's for people who like the Dick Figures work I did. It's a lot more uh, in that vein. Well, I'm into horror, so when you can talk about it and we get closer to that release date, hope to have you back on so we can chat about it for a bit. Definitely. I'd love to. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Zach, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for being on Creator Talks. Of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. So what's coming up, you may ask? Well, I have two interviews already in the can, but I have to tease them. Sorry about that. I'm not sure which order I'm going to release these in, but I will tell you that one is with an individual who experienced a very difficult crisis, and we're changed by it. This is the one where we had to use an interpreter to conduct the interview. So I will be working on that, and I just finished another one in the past week with a veteran writer-artist of Marvel Comics and DC Comics. This individual wrote stories about black superheroes for Marvel Comics, and also created a black superhero for DC Comics. And that superhero has their own show on CW. How's that for a hint? To find out who these guests will be on my show, just follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or heck, follow me on all of them if you have nothing better to do with your life. I'm sure you do. Anyway, if you want to follow me, I'm at at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. There I will let you know who those guests will be when the shows are dropped and they come out every other Thursday. You can find them on your favorite podcast catcher. Listen to Creator Talks interviews on the podcast catcher you like, whenever you like, wherever you like. And if you haven't yet, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping the show reach new listeners, along with you spreading the word about Creator Talks interviews with friends who like to read comics. Oh, and hey, that reminds me, I'll be posting my favorites from my personal collection on Saturdays and Sundays, the Silver Age, Bronze Age, and even the occasional Copper Age from my collection. What's your favorite comic? Please let me know. Share it on social media at Creator Talks Pod or email me directly with your comments and questions. I'm at creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. I thank you again for spending some time with me listening to these interviews, and I look forward to bringing you more in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, be safe out there. Be good to one another. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.